Good morning. Welcome back. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Myron. I'm the Director of Economic Studies at uh, Cato. It's my pleasure to moderate this session on inflation, deflation, and monetary rules. I'm going to give you very brief introductions of our four panelists, since you have longer versions uh, in your materials. And then we'll just go in the order in which they appear on the program. So Charles Plosser served as President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia from 2016 to 2015. Before that, he was a professor at the Graduate School of Business. It was 2006, not 16. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. 2006 to 2015. It's like negative interest rates. <laughs> um, we're showing that if you went to MIT, you can't read. Or in this case, you can't even count. So, <laughs> okay. So before coming to the Philadelphia Fed, uh, Plasser was the, a distinguished Olin professor at uh, University of Rochester in the Graduate School of Business, where he also served as dean. He, of course, spent uh, quite a number of years recently um, waging wars in the FOMC, as documented in Ben Bernanke's Courage to Act, which I recently just finished. Um, and Professor Plosser has his PhD from the University of Chicago. John Taylor is the Mary and Robert Raymond Professor of Economics at Stanford and the George P. Schultz Senior Fellow in Economics at Stanford's Hoover Institution. He's had numerous um, important roles in government as Senior Economist on the President's Council of Economic Advisors, as a member of the Council, and as the Undersecretary of Treasury. Uh, quite unusually for an economist, uh, he has won both numerous teaching prizes, Stanford-wide and within the Economics Department, and numerous prizes for his policy work, uh, most recently the Truman Medal for Economic Policy. His book, Getting Off Track, was one of the first on the financial crisis and won the Hayek Prize, excuse me, um, won the Hayek Prize, and his 2012 book uh, won the Hayek Prize, First Principles, Five Keys to Restoring America's Prosperity. George Selzin, my colleague here at Cato, is a senior fellow and director of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives here. He's also Professor Emeritus in Economics from the University of Georgia. His research covers a broad range of topics within monetary economics. He has numerous books, most recently, Good Money, Birmi uh, excuse me, Birmingham Button Makers, The Royal Mint, and the Beginnings of Modern Coinage. He, of course, has numerous articles in distinguished journals, as well as uh, popular writing in the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. I will note that he has a dual undergraduate degree in economics and zoology, something unusual for an economist, uh, to say the least. Finally, Scott Summer is the Ralph Hawtrey Chair of Monetary Policy at the Mercatus Center at George Mason, a research fellow at the Independent Institute and a professor of economics uh, near my, my town uh, at Bentley University. He is very, very well known as a blogger. Uh, the Chronicle of, education, of Higher Education referred to Scott as among the most influential economist bloggers, along with Greg Mankiw and Paul Krugman of Princeton. Um, Scott's articles have appeared in various journals, and he holds his PhD from the University of Chicago. Thank you, Jeff. It's uh, great to be back here at Cato once again. Um, I think in the last six years, I may have been here at least four or five of them giving, giving talks, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be back and uh, glad to participate on this, this panel. My, um, I'm going to talk a little more about, uh, follow up perhaps on George's comments earlier, talk a little more about the rules versus discretion debate and a little bit about what we do about that is kind of the way, the, the gist of what I'm going to do. So as George said, um, you know, the rules versus discretion debate dates back a long time. The most 
common references, Henry Simons, uh, back in 1936 in the JPE, wrote his famous paper on uh, rules versus authorities in monetary policy. And of course, Simons' view stressed the importance of establishing rules of the game and as opposed to the delegation of legislative authorities um, to central banks. What he, when he used the word authorities, what he would mean means would be authorities granted by the legislature to act discretionary, essentially, the powers. Um, so um, Simon struggled with these concepts, very, and very, very, uh, very rightfully, I think. Um, and he discussed the rules versus authorities in the context of a classic liberal society. So what should we do about this? He concluded that establishing rules of the game was better than establishing authorities, and that in some sense they might have been the lesser of two evils from his perspective. Now, of course, the modern version of rules versus authorities or rules versus discretion is embodied in the Nobel Prize-winning work of Finn Kittle and Ed Prescott. Again, a JPE paper in 1977 entitled Rules Rather Than Discretion, The Inconsistency of Optimal Plans. And what Kittle and Prescott showed us was that a regime that, where policymakers pre-commit to behave in a particular way is preferable to a regime that allows policymakers pure discretion. That is, discretion meaning to choose policies independently at each point in time. Now that idea is very counterintuitive to most people. Whenever I taught this in lectures, you know, people look at it like, what are you, how can that possibly be true? It's particularly unappealing to policymakers. They just revolt at the idea almost. Um, I mean, after all, the argu argument might go is that policymakers could choose the same set of actions <coughs> under discretion he could choose under commitment. So it must be that if you can choose the same set of decisions, must mean the discretionary policy can certainly be no worse than a policy that entails pre-commitment. Therefore, so, so to speak, the argument goes, um, there's value in retaining flexibility. Or the favorite word you heard at the Fed all the time was optionality. But thanks to Kendall and Prescott we, and others, we now know that that's, this argument is sort of basically flawed. And the fatal flaw in that conventional wisdom is the failure to understand the important role played by expectations. Role of expectations is the key to understanding why that discretionary policy is basically flawed. Um, expectations play a role in lots of economic life, in the financial markets, and about any, anything that we think about today, uh, we think about expectations, particularly from an economic sense. Um, but before I go any further, let me briefly kind of circumscribe what I'm going to mean here. So what I mean by a committed policymaker is that essentially a policymaker that delivers on past promises about future actions, commitment. Uh, discretion, on the other hand, means that a policymaker is not bound by previous actions, not bound by previous decisions and is free to make an independent decision at each point in time. So the discretionary policymaker is free to change his or her mind whenever they, they want to in order to do things better. But what Kittle and Prescott taught us is that the argument that that's optimal is flawed. In fact, they show that 
that outcomes under a discretionary regime are most likely to be worse than those under a regime where the policymaker can, is constrained to follow through on previous commitments. So there are lots of examples of how to understand why this is so important. A, a favorite one and kind of a simple one is the notion of patents. So economists have known for a long time that in, innovative and creative activity, uh, if you want to get society and provide the incentives to people to engage in lots of investment and creative activity, one of the things, particularly when it comes to ideas, is that um, you want the creator to be able to benefit and reap the rewards of his creative energies. So governments all around the world have, have opted to create patent laws of various kinds, and we can debate which ones are good and which ones are bad, but patents are a way of assuring that when an inventor or creator does something, they can earn their payoff because they own the rights to the, to the patent. But now think of a world in which, okay, you've got that, at, and then a policymaker decides after the invention and after the design that this is so important that it is optimal for them to say, I'm going to avoid the patent. I'm going to give the design of the new product away to anybody that wants it. That's going to lower the cost, create more competition, and make society better off. Now, we all know the problem with that argument. That argument is, yes, that discretionary decision to wipe the patent law or remove the patent may look great today, but the consequence of that discretionary decision is that you are going to squash inventive and creative activity for the future. And so by expectations that their efforts will not be rewarded in the future because the patents could be voided at will through discretion, you know, actually lowers welfare in, in that world. So uh, that's just an example of how expectations can be important um, and uh, why we need to worry about the role of expectations and the importance of commitment, okay? Um, and of course, this is true for monetary policy as well. Um, uh, a firm's R&D decisions are affected by expectations about future patent production, and many other economic decisions are affected the same way. The stance of monetary policy is not just what the level of the funds rate or instrument is today. Monetary policy is defined by the whole path. So expectations about the future path of policy are just as important, in fact, may even be more important than whatever the stance of policy is, to, uh, the, the interest rate is today. Um, and so if that's the case, then you, we worry about monetary policymakers attempting to pursue policies in the short run that are inconsistent with their longer term, term um, roles and objectives. So when I think about policy, part of this is thinking about commitment. So looking back over time, and you think about how societies have addressed this issue of commitment, because commitment's important, as we just learned, uh, none of those efforts to get commitment are perfect. Indeed, in a democratic society, I would suggest that it's probably impossible to obtain full commitment. Legislation is one, one mechanism for, for uh, obtaining and supporting commitment, but laws, of course, can and do change, so it's not perfect. Nonetheless, by creating legislation or laws, you can raise the hurdle, if you will, <laughs> to making those changes. So you, you, you ensure more commitment even though it's not in quite uh, perfect. So establishing rules of the game in Simon's, uh, Herb Simon's uh, sense, um, Henry Simon, excuse me, Herb Simon was a different, different <laughs> economist, um, is, um, 
through legislation is an important way, or at least trying to obtain some commitment in some form. Um, creating institutions. Doug North, Nobel Prize winner back in the early 90s, uh, stressed to economists the importance of institutions and how institutions are designed can matter for getting the outcomes that you want to, uh, want to look at. Two years ago at this conference, I gave a talk entitled, uh, it was titled, A Limited Central Bank. And there I argued before the same, same, uh, in the same place that there are other ways other than legislation um, or, or in addition to legislation that can strengthen commitment and limit discretionary behaviors. So I, I sort of suggested that an institution with a more limited purpose, fewer authorities can improve the ability of policymakers to both commit to future behaviors and to be held accountable for their outcomes. So I argued for designing a central bank with a more narrow mandate as a way to focus activities and focus the tasks of the central bank. Um, that narrow mandate makes the, makes the central bank more transparent, makes it easier to hold policymakers accountable. Um, broad mandates, broad and expansive mandates that are accompanied by broad authorities and powers to intervene in markets at different stages, just from my perspective, invite discretionary behavior. It invites uh, moving goalposts and changing goals and objectives. So I also argue for limiting the range of assets that a central bank can purchase, and thus the markets in which it's allowed to directly intervene. This too, by li limiting the types of assets a central bank can purchase, uh, helps align authorities, align their powers with their goals and their mandates, and limits discretion. Of course, a gold standard, and we heard a little bit about that earlier, uh, also provides a form of commitment. Um, in principle, there's very little room for discretionary monetary policy under a gold standard. And indeed, a metallic standard of some kind has been the form of, of monetary standards for off and on for centuries. But it doesn't work that well either. Um, Economic forces, the incentives of governments, especially during wars, to abandon the gold standard for other reasons so they can make discretionary decisions, ultimately led to the abandonment of a gold standard more than once, actually. Um, and um, so all those mechanisms are useful and valuable because policymakers and governments do understand the importance of this commitment context. People. Have, some countries use fixed exchange rates as a means to attain credibility and that commitment. Britain Woods, Britain Woods uh, was a mechanism for doing that. So there are lots of different ways governments have tried. Um, Rule-based uh, discussions we, we were having this morning about what are good rules or uh, having monetary authority follow rules is a way of ensuring commitment as well and limiting discretion. Um, and we know a lot about those rules over the last several decades. Um, obviously, John Taylor is, is, is most famously uh, 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 tied to this work and a leader in this. But over time, there are other rules that are out there uh, that have been proposed, and many of them are quite robust. Uh, and robustness is important because that means they work well even when you disagree on the fundamental model. <laughs> And of course, we don't really know what the model is. Rules improve communication. They make it easier to talk about the future because you can talk about it in the context. It sets expectations. It reduces uncertainty. And again, as long as you're committed to follow the rule, uh, it can help the economy. 
We talked a little bit about inflation targeting in the last, in the last panel as well. That's another device. The problem with inflation targeting, it, it, it is incomplete, okay? Inflation targeting is incomplete. It tells you what your goal is, but it doesn't give a, any, tell you anything about what the policy strategy is to achieve the goal. That remains highly discretionary under a simple um, inflation targeting regime. And so it really doesn't give the kind of communication and transparency that you like to have. So where do we go from here? Uh, so what I've tried to stress is that getting full commitment is really hard. But it is the commitment piece that's important. And so how do you, how do, you do that? Um, I mean, the Fed has made forward guidance statements for the last five years. None of them were there in the form of full commitment. In fact, they always had the caveat on them, um, um, but if things change, we'll reconsider. So you can't do forward guidance and signal commitment at the same time you're trying to, you want to be discretionary. Those two things are incompatible with each other. And indeed, it's been my view that um, part of the Fed's problem in communication is this tension between rules versus discretion. Since we've been at the lower bound, their desire to be discretionary, but then their desire to want to be committed policymakers and use forward guidance as a tool. Those are just inconsistent with each other. Um, and um, I actually think that discretion is, not a, discretion is not a monetary policy strategy. Discretion is the absence of a strategy. So I think it's really import, important that we, that we constrain. Paul Volcker said to me one time uh, at um, uh, Montague Norman, who was the famous governor of the Bank of England for the last, from 1920 to, I guess, after World War II, not 44, something like that, once told him, he said, Montague Norman told me, he said, quote, the prescription for a central banker is never explain and never apologize. <laughs> now, I don't know whether that quote's true or not or its attribution is accurate. That is what Paul Volcker told me, so I'm going to blame him if it's not. But whatever the, whatever the truth of the, of the attribution is, I think that statement captures well the attitude and practice of central banking through most of the 20th century, actually. But times have changed, of course. Transparency has replaced secrecy. Uh, openness and communication have replaced mystery. Um, there are those who still long for those thrilling days of yesteryear when nobody knew what the Fed was going to do next time or cared about it particularly. Well, they cared, but they didn't know. Uh, but I don't think we can roll back the clock, <laughs> nor should we actually. Um, and so uh, I give the Fed a lot of credit for its efforts at transparency and openness. Um, I don't... I don't uh, uh, they've worked very hard at it. I know I was there working on it for a long time. Um, but I think the problem we have, I say we, there I go. That, I have this problem <laughs> since I just retired. I don't have to say we anymore. And by the way, you notice I didn't have to do what Jeff and Jim did, which was say these views are my own. I don't speak for the rest of the Fed. So I don't have to say that anymore either, which is fun. Um, so what I'd like to do is um, uh, the, challenge, the challenge then is, as I see it, is to... Um, how do we get more commitment? How do we engender commitment into the institution? And how do we engender that in a commitment in a way that's most likely to be held? So I don't know that I, there's an easy answer for that. But I'm going to make one suggestion, and then I'm going to, going to stop. I, I've been suggesting for the last couple of years that the Fed can actually make progress on this fairly simply. The Fed, the FOMC, every meeting, gets in its briefing papers, 
the outcomes of the Fed staff running our favorite model, Furbus, <laughs> with a set of rules, different rules. So four or five, what I would describe as reasonably robust rules that have been proposed in the economics literature. They run those rules through the, through the Furbus, and they tell us what the outcomes are. So there are people within the Fed who value that information, but they never talk about it. So I think the first step the Fed could and should do is to make that public. Right? In a quarterly monetary policy report, which I've been advocating for some time, write in that policy report every quarter what the results of the rules that, they, that the staff has run. And when they, they don't have to pick one, although you might ultimately get to that state. The first step is just report them. Report what the outcomes are. And then, perhaps more importantly, talk about the policy decisions they made in the context of those rules. That's a disciplining device that forces them to confront the rules. Now, often those rules, will, there'll be a range of choices within those rules, generally. But make them justify what they're doing. Explain why they're deviating from this rule or that rule. And um, that would change the tone of the discussion at FOMC meetings. It would change the way you thought about justifying policy. Yes, there'll still be a lot of discretion there, but by constraining the way you talk about it and trying to justify and, and explain a strategy that why you're deviating from any, any rule, it would be an important part of the communication strategy that would get the FOMC to begin thinking and operating and communicating <laughs> differently. That's easy. They can do it. They don't need legislation. They don't need a change in the Federal Reserve Act to do that. They can just do it. And by the way, one of the dangers I think about legislation is that, and this, I'll leave it on this, one of the dangers I think about legislation is that um, the risks that the outcome of legislation in its effort to find compromises and supporters, the outcome could be worse than the disease. And the risk of having um, the Fed become either more politicized than it already is or less independent than it already is would be a bad trade-off, I think, at the, at the end of the day. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, thanks uh, for inviting me back again. Uh, the last time, two times I spoke here, once was about, it was the 30th anniversary, 30th, and I talk about how much we learned from the previous 30 years for the next 30 years, and it was about how we should apply rules-based monetary policy. The other time um, recently was a suggestion uh, that we have some legislation to help uh, the Fed along in setting a rules-based policy. And, and it looks like something like that uh, may be coming. There's bills already. I want to talk about uh, the international aspects of these issues today, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. It hasn't really been as much of a discussion of rules-based policy as, uh, as it might be. It actually comes up in the gold standard. George 
mentioned that this morning about the species flow mechanism and, the, and it evaluating the gold standard. It was a very important part of the discussion. But I think we need to think a little more about the international aspects of rules-based policy, and that's what I want to do. So when I look around the world right now, I see uh, a drifting away, put it that way, from steady rules-based policies of the kind that academics, Milton Friedman, have long advocated and wanted, or practitioners like Paul Volcker have long advocated and wanted. Both uh, Milton would be disappointed and Volcker is disappointed. So what do I see exactly? Well, I see massive capital flows going back and forth between emerging markets and developed countries. What's going out now? It's going back. See more volatile exchange rates. You see that a lot of that in the last uh, few years, especially emerging markets. Uh, uh, Governor Chance has talked about that. You see a lot of um, spillover of monetary policy from one central bank to other. Mainly, it's from the Fed to emerging market countries. You can detect it. You can talk to central bankers, and they talk about it all the time. It's there's a much greater degree of, of spread. In fact, I think amplification, actually, because if central banks are all following each other, there tends to be a magnification of this, amplification. So you see that. You can see that in the data. That's uh, uh, unsteadiness, if you like, um, more volatility. You certainly see it in the performance. I think if you go back into the dozen years, you've had a great global financial crisis, a slow recovery. Emerging markets are hurting now compared to where they could be, where they've been. You also see other actions, more on the policy side, much more use of capital controls. You see the use of macroprudential regulations aimed at international transactions. You certainly see a lot more currency interventions um, all over the place than you saw in the past. And on top of all this, you're seeing the top officials at the International Monetary Fund, if not endorsing, <clears throat> saying it's okay to exert capital controls. Uh, and that's so much different to where it was, say, in the late 90s when the interim committee of the IMF was recommending a, uh, a removal of the remaining capital controls. So it's, it's a big deal. I think, unfortunately, what's happening from this uh, is a feeling that you can't have a rules-based international system, sort of what people are observing from these observations I just mentioned. In fact, Helena Ray just uh, recently uh, presented a paper at the annual Jackson Hole Conference saying that this increased capital flows volatility indicates you cannot have independent monetary policies without closing or restricting capital flows, some kind of capital market intervention. Sebastian Edwards, just very recently, observing the impact of monetary policy in one country on others, said, hey, you can't have independent monetary policies internationally and flexible exchange rates. Now those statements and these observations mean the kind of rules-based international policies Milton Friedman was talking about are just not possible. Remember, flexible exchange rates, 
open capital markets, and rules-based policy focused on domestic stability in each country. That's the concept that Milton Friedman wrote about the 50s. It's actually the same kind of concept that people with more formal models wrote about in the 1980s as a way to generate a kind of rules-based international system. So this research is leading people, including top officials in international organizations, to conclude we can't do that. Now, I think the correlations that are leading this are largely spurious. And in fact, I think they're caused by the fact that many central banks have chosen, I think incorrectly, to move away from rules-based policy on their own. And for various reasons, financial crisis, I think it came before the financial crisis, but whatever, whatever it is. And I think that departure is causing both this increased capital volatility and to some extent a degree which central banks are, are mimicking and following each other. And so, first of all, there, there is no dispute that there's been a deviation from rules-based policy. I wrote about it a while ago in 2003, four and five, when the, when the funds rate was much lower than what uh, would have happened in the past. Um, the, the BIS is writing about the, the great global deviation about so many central banks moving away from rules-based policy. You can see it in the very unusual types of interventions. It's hard to think of quantitative easing being rule-like. The forward guidance, as, as Charlie just mentioned, moves all the time. It's inherently been not rule-like as implemented. And in fact, there's been a sense in which some of this following is related to quantitative easing. I think of the quantitative easing in the US, 09, 10, 11, leading the Japanese to say, hey, our currency is way too high. Abe runs on that, gets elected, appoints Haruhiko Kuroda. He matches QE, and lo and behold, the yen goes from 80 to 120. And then you have just last year Mario Draghi saying, hey, what about the euro? It's too high. We're going to do QE, too. He does it, just talks about it, and, and the euro uh, depreciates substantially against the dollar. QE begets QE is what we're seeing here. I think you also have some evidence that this, this increased capital volatility is, is related to these events. Um, you certainly have much more attention paid to central banks following each other now than you had before. Although, I mean, I did some, a lot of this myself. A lot of it has happened since this. So there's something going on that's related to this particular period. So that leads me to believe to say that really the problem here is not that rules-based policy is impossible internationally. It's that if we get central banks themselves individually, country by country, um, to follow more rules-based policy, it will generate a more rules-based international system. I think that's what the data tell me. I think the theory also suggests this. There's complicated models you can use, but you can go back to the kind of arguments that we used to talk about the gold standard and specie flow to see the, to the extent this, which is the case. So, so imagine a world where capital is perfectly mobile, no, no constraints, controls, exchange rates are flexible, and each central bank follows a policy rule to stabilize its own, uh, and say, inflation rate. If you want to add st stability of GDP, that's fine. 
So in that kind of circumstance, if, if other central banks are doing that, maybe have, everybody has an inflation target of 2%, pretty close to where things are now. Then there's a, if there's a shock to inflation in one country, the central bank will raise interest rates, trying to stabilize inflation. That shock to inflation in one country will transmit abroad to some extent, so there'll be a sense in which foreign central banks will also raise their interest rates because of that shock. But because we know that shock will have a smaller impact abroad, the raise of interest rates, the rise of interest rates in other countries will be smaller, so there'll be a gap between the country where the shock occurred and other countries. And that gap will affect exchange rates. It will affect capital flows. And that's what people, that's on people's mind about why this is impossible. But the truth is, if the central banks were following policy rules, at least to some extent understandable, those impacts would be quite temporary. Because you'd come back to the target inflation rate. You'd come back to normal conditions. And so you would remove a lot of the incentives that central banks would have to follow each other. Just stick with it. You'll be okay. Don't just do what the Fed's doing. Uh, because you're worried about exchange rates or capital flows, uh, it'll be okay. It's going to be temporary. In a sense, when I say QE begets QE, I think we have evidence for that. But what this theoretical ideas are telling us, it goes the other way too. Rules-based policy beget rules-based policy. If you have a sense in which maybe the major central bank, but others are in this mode of rule-like behavior, and you have a sense of what they're doing, it's going to make it easier for you to have rule-like behavior and have a sense of what you're doing. So I, I think there's, the theoretical models tell this, but in a sense, it's, it's really common, kind of common sense. So this leads me to believe that there's kind of a solution to this apparent lack of rules-based policy internationally. And that's for each central bank to describe, better yet commit to, its own rules-based strategy. Not that hard. You can imagine an international organization orchestrating something like this. It doesn't need to be that way. It could be the G20. It could be the IMF. The idea is that each central bank, each country, is saying, here's what our strategy is. It's not at all unlike what Charles just described for the US, but each country would do that. I think that it would not threaten in any way central bank independence, either, either within a country or internationally, because you would not, part of this would not be to tell another central bank what to do. That's their job. That's their job to find their best policy rule, if you like, to respond to circumstances there. It doesn't threaten independence in any way, as, as I say. I think it also. You, you must have to have some way to deal with the practicalities that the world changes or is an emergency and somehow you say, okay, we're, this is on hold for a while and I don't think you need that often, maybe never, but you'd have to have that. So there'd be some kind of concept of, of, of explaining why you're moving away from this strategy. Could be country by country. Could be some, some agreement about how you actually do that. So I think that would go a long way to dealing with this. And again, it's the sense is the foundation of a rules-based international system, which has flexible exchange rates, capital mobility, and rules-based policy in each country. The foundation is exactly that, is the rules-based policy in each country. And it generates almost automatically, in a, almost an invisible hand sense, this global rules-based policy. 
Now, what's standing in the way of this right now? Obviously, disagreement about my diagnosis and my hypothesis. We've got to work on that. I think I, <laughs> that's why I'm talking about this. Uh, you also have the fact that we're not there yet. There's many central banks not even close to this at this point. So there has, there has certainly has to be a renormalization of the kind that many people uh, in these panels have argued that we should do. I think if the world's major central bank um, in charge of the major currency, the Fed, would move in this direction, it would make a huge difference. Basically, if you think back to other things like this, U.S. leadership was very, very important. So I think that it has ramifications globally. Again, it's not interfering, nothing doing here which is contrary to mandates or anything the Federal Reserve has. But I do think uh, that this idea could be reinforced, given a little help, if you like, by some legislative action, which would actually require the Fed to do this, not internationally, just domestically, require the Fed to say what its strategy is. It's the Fed's job to decide. Lots of different ways to do this, uh, as, as Charles mentioned, but say what it is, have a process for changing it if they, if they might. I think that would go a long way to, to reinforcing the idea that I have in mind here, which is this international version of the importance of rules-based policy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello. I'd, uh, I'd like to start by uh, explaining that the views I'm about to express are not those of the Federal Reserve Board or <laughs> any Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, rather, they're my own views. Uh, I'm going to be uh, talking today on a topic that uh, attempts to pay a sort of double homage to Milton Friedman. Of course, as has been mentioned a couple times today, Friedman uh, is one of the great advocates of monetary rules. Friedman also wrote a paper called real and pseudo-gold standards, so I thought, why not a paper and a talk about real and pseudo-monetary rules? In a lot of respects, my uh, talk uh, is, is really just a footnote on some of the things that uh, Mr. Plosser said, an elaboration, perhaps. So um, let me start with a, a sort of standard definition of monetary rules that one can find in textbooks and other places. Uh, a prescribed guide for the conduct of monetary policy. Well, that's okay, but it's very, very broad, and I'd like to argue that, it, in fact, it, 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 although it does encompass what I wish to uh, regard as real monetary rules, the definition also encompasses pseudo-monetary rules, and I'd like to explain what the difference between the two is. And by the way, just as Friedman in his paper on the gold standard was trying to make uh, an argument for positive, of positive economics. The same is true with what I have to say here for the most part. I'm making a distinction uh, without necessarily claiming that real rules are superior to pseudo-rules, though I'll make some arguments as to why they might be. So what are the purposes of a monetary rule? Well, the most obvious purpose is to rule out capricious or irresponsible central bank conduct, like the sort of conduct that presently is giving Venezuela and a couple other countries inflation rates in the very high double digits monthly. 
that's, uh, uh, that's obviously one purpose of monetary rules, and it's not just a matter of ruling out hyperinflation. It's a matter of preventing central banks from being influenced by politics to help reelect a president, that sort of thing. There are lots of kinds of capricious central bank behavior we could talk about. The second argument, and one that Friedman is most well known for, but also an argument one can refer to Hayek's work to uh, elaborate, as I believe uh, Jerry O'Driscoll will be doing later today, is that uh, rules prevent central banks from committing errors of omission, that is, <clears throat> errors stemming from imperfect knowledge, where by acting according to a rule, yes, there may be errors of uh, omission in following such a rule, but the argument is that the right sort of rule may result in less overall error by avoiding errors of commission and allowing only less serious errors of omission. Finally, of course, there is the, the argument that Mr. Plosser stressed from Kidland and Prescott that a monetary rule can keep an economy from becoming trapped in an inferior time inconsistent equilibrium by simply making it impossible for the monetary authorities to exploit such an equilibrium once it's established uh, and therefore can actually allow for more optimal a monetary policy than complete discretion might achieve. So my argument uh, uh, and distinction between rules, real and pseudo-monetary rules, hinges on the simple observation that a rule, a monetary rule, shouldn't be considered real unless it's actually able to accomplish what monetary rules are supposed to accomplish, which is the three things I just summarized. Well, I assert that in order to do that, first of all, monetary rule has to be strictly enforced. That is, it has to have some teeth to it. It has to be a rule that is going to be followed, and that requires that it be enforced by sanctions or by other means. I'll discuss some different means for rule enforcement uh, in a moment. The other requirement, and a less obvious one, is that the monetary rule has to be robust. I don't know what that thing is, but sure looks robust to me. Um, and by robustness of a monetary rule, I, uh, what I mean is not what some technical uh, discussions uh, that use the term robustness mean. I mean that the rule, if, that if the rule is strictly enforced, it's not that strict enforcement of the rule is not likely to be a cause of regret that would lead to the rules that would pose a large probability that the rule would ultimately be modified or abandoned. Okay? Now, all of this is about commitment, as Mr. Plosser uh, emphasized, or, if you like, about the credibility of the rule. And the point is that if it's not a real rule, that, that is, a rule that satisfies these requirements of robustness and enforcement, then it's, it's not credible, and it isn't going to accomplish some of the crucial things that monetary rules are supposed to accomplish. Now, many of the things we think about as monetary rules today are really what I would call pseudo-rules, not real monetary rules. Just to give an example, uh, a, a pegged exchange rate regime where a central bank is, at least for a while, uh, uh, committed or apparently committed to keeping its exchange rate fixed in terms of some other currency. But if the commitment doesn't rest on any enforcement mechanism, if nothing 
happens to the central bankers or monetary authorities for violating this commitment, if they don't experience some significant sanctions, then, of course, it's just a policy guide but not a real rule. And uh, that makes a difference in its credibility with some very important potential uh, consequences if that uh, credibility doesn't hold. Uh, another example, I would say, is the, the uh, previous, the 2014 Federal Reserve Accountability and Transparency Act, which has now been incorporated in an omnibus measure. There are some sanctions involved in this proposal, but they're somewhat weak. Uh, there is the possibility of uh, GAO audits uh, if the uh, adopted, Fed's adopted uh, rule called the Directive Policy Rule is, uh, is violated or if there's non-compliance, as the Act calls it. Uh, however, it's not clear just what the sanctions will be. There's a lot of ifs, ands, or buts regarding what, if any, consequences will follow if uh, the Fed's chosen rule, uh, is, in fact, is not something it adheres to. Um, I think it's fair to say that the limited discretion proposal that Mr. Plosser discussed uh, probably wouldn't qualify as a strict uh, real monetary rule in my sense. Now, here's the thing. Uh, it's quite possible that a pseudo-monetary rule could be the worst of both extremes of pure uh, a real rule and discretion. Take the pegged exchange rate I referred to earlier. That's a very clear case because it ties the hands of the monetary authorities as far as it, so long as it remains in place, and that may prevent them from really minimizing the economy's loss function, so to speak. However, because it's not entirely credible, it could be this object of a speculative attack, which uh, causes the whole thing to break down. And that, of course, is uh, very unfortunate when that happens. All right, let me talk a little bit about rule enforcement mechanisms. Uh, the most obvious sort are rule enforcement by contract, and the most well-known case of uh, an arrangement that supposedly involves this is New Zealand's policy targets agreement, where, well, the way it's usually summarized, the, the governor of the bank in New Zealand will get fired if he doesn't stick to the target. In fact, if you read the legislation, it's so full of mites, mays, buts, and ifs that it's perfectly clear that it's not really a real monetary rule at all, and in fact, the, the uh, target uh, of the targets agreement that was in place in the mid to late 90s was violated several times and nothing happened. So that was really a pseudo, that's really a pseudo monetary rule. The gold standard, well, it depends. Under private, when a gold standard was enforced by private institutions, such as the Bank of England was until 1933, there was real contract there, and there were actually sanctions in the form of losses for violating the contract. Of course, a conventional bank that doesn't honor its contractual obligation to redeem its IOUs in real money uh, has to go broke and the shareholders lose. But even in the case of the Bank of England before 1933, Gary Santoni has an excellent paper showing how its profits suffered if it didn't adhere to the gold standard. And so to get it off the gold standard, the government had to wrest control of it, as it did during the Napoleonic Wars and since. Uh, a pseudo-gold standard, of course, which is what most central banks operated in the 20s, is where the gold standard is essentially just a matter of policy, not contract. And it's very important to understand that when you have a nationalized central bank promising to redeem money in gold, that's just, a, that's just like a pegged exchange rate. 
as opposed to a contractual commitment that's got some uh, pecuniary consequences uh, attached to it when it's violated. And by the way, I would add the transition from a gold standard as a matter of private contract to one of government policy as one of the things that changed between before 1914 and the 1920s to, to, to Mr. Tablas's list. All right, what about robustness? Well, oops. <clears throat> uh, there are two, two issues here. One is, is the rule one that can avoid economic distress, right? So uh, I'll get to the weasel in a minute. I know it's very <laughs> distracting. <laughs> I should have waited. Uh, a, a rule that's going to cause economic distress, right, because it's a poor rule for uh, allowing the economy to avoid the pain of inflation or unemployment on certain occasions, that's a rule that's most likely not going to be retained for very long or strictly enforced, and that undermines robustness, I think, in my sense. And that's a very clear point. The less well-appreciated one is whether the rule can be innocently broken. If it's such that it can be innocently broken, uh, then it's also not robust. What I mean by that can be best explained by distinguishing three kinds of variables. The target variable, which is the thing that is the target of the rule, the instrument used by the central bank, and what I call weasel variables, which are things that are variables that influence the target but are not directly controlled by the central bank. And well, the point is, a central banker who violates, say, a price stability target can weasel out by saying, well, our predictions about what was happening to velocity or what would happen, the course of that, or the money multiplier, whatever, were wrong, but we tried our best. So there, the more weasel variables there are, the less robust the target is, in my sense, because there's more reason to regret strictly enforcing a target that is innocently violated. You end up punishing central bankers who really are doing the best that can be done. There's a trade-off here, of course, in that uh, those rules that are most robust would involve targeting of the instruments themselves, like the monetary base. If you say to a central banker, let the monetary base grow 3% a year, there's practically no way to weasel out because that, that's the instrument that is also the target, and they can control, the central bankers can control it perfectly well. But distress of the other kind is quite likely, right? So you have robustness lacking in the sense that a strict base growth rule is likely to occasionally, uh, and quite often actually, result in either uh, undesirable inflation or undesirable uh, unemployment. Okay. All right, last thing very quickly. Uh, well, feedback rules... In, it seemed to me to be the most robust. So you tell the central bank to control the base using a feedback rule from a target variable that's what you really want to stabilize, like NGDP or Taylor rule, right? Uh, or the, ba the, tar the instrument could be something else. It's true that the problem long and variable lags applies to such feedback rules, I think, as Mr. Tablas mentioned. But that's also true for any rule that's based on a non-instrument target, right? even Friedman's growth rate rule. Okay. There's another kind of enforcement, though, that doesn't depend on sanctions that I want to talk about very quickly. This is enforcement by design, where the monetary system is such that the rule has to be obeyed. There essentially is no authority in place that can violate the rules, so no need for sanctions. Obvious case of that is dollarization, as is practiced in Ecuador and elsewhere. You knew that was Ecuador, didn't you? Uh, and... Uh, then, of course, there's Friedman's idea of a monetary policy controlled 
a money growth rate uh, controlled or regulated by a computer rather than an FOMC. No FOMC, no need for sanctions. You don't have to punish a computer. You just have to program it right, and the rule will be obeyed. Bitcoin's a fascinating other example of this where you have a, an algorithm with a blockchain technology that controls the growth rate of the money supply, uh, and nobody can change it, of the Bitcoin supply, I should say, because it's not really money. But we can imagine implementing monetary rules with such a technology that are a lot fancier than the rule in Bitcoin and maybe more macroeconomically nice with uh, less odds of regret of that other kind. Finally, uh, we have Scott Sumner's idea of a market-driven NGDP targeting scheme. Is that a real rule or a pseudo-rule? I'm not absolutely sure. I reread the proposal again and couldn't quite make up my mind, so I'm hoping that Scott uh, in speaking to us next, will convince us one way or the other. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you very much. Let's see. I'm good. There we are. Well, that's a good lead-in. Uh, thank you for inviting me again. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, three proposals. Uh, let me... Go ahead here. For um, sort of nudging the Fed towards a more rules-based approach and ultimately, I hope, towards a nominal GDP target. Um, I think there definitely is need for a change in monetary policy, but it's not really realistic to expect a conservative institution to just jump all into something like nominal GDP targeting. I don't think it's even desirable, perhaps, for them to take that sort of risk all at once. So what would be some ways of nudging them? So I've got basically three sort of pragmatic reforms that uh, I think would indirectly, and I emphasize indirectly, move the Fed in the right direction. And you may not see the connections at first, but I hope to sort of make them clear as we go along. First one, clearly defining the meaning of the stance of monetary policy. So this term is used a lot in communication by the Fed, but it's not really clear what they mean when they talk about easy and tight money. Second, making the Fed more accountable, but not exactly in the way that uh, is being considered in Congress now. Instead, what I'd like to see is the Fed to revisit past policy settings and ascertain their effectiveness ex post after the data has come in. And third, take a small but important step towards level targeting, which would be sort of setting guardrails on the maximum permissible um, fluctuation in aggregate demand. So these are the three proposals that I'll look at briefly. First of all, what do we mean by easy money? Uh, I would argue that economists don't really know what these terms mean, and even worse, they don't know what they, that they don't know what these terms mean. Uh, Lots of people like to talk about easy and tight money, expansionary, contractionary, accommodative, restrictive, and so on. But they're using these terms very loosely. You know, in the media, and even to some extent in the economics profession, people point to interest rates, either real or nominal, or they point to money supply growth. Um, more sophisticated opinion within the economics community rejects those metrics for various reasons, but doesn't come up with any accepted alternatives. So we just have this big muddle. And 
we don't really have a way of clearly communicating what we're talking about when we talk about the stance of monetary policy. Let's look at an example, just some data from the Great Depression. I hope looking at this data, you can see a little bit of a, a parallel with what's happened in the last decade in the United States, right? Huge increase in the monetary base. Interest rates falling close to zero and staying there for an extended period of time. Um, most economists today view the monetary policy as being highly contractionary in the Great Depression. Most economists, I think, believe monetary policy has been expansionary in the last decade. Interesting question is why? Why the difference? Um, if you look at um, more recently, late 2007, early 2008, the monetary base suddenly stopped growing. And yet during this period, most people thought monetary policy was fairly accommodative. Uh, so if the monetary base is the right variable, why wasn't money tight in late 07, early 08? Uh, interest rates, real interest rates are probably better than nominal, but even those are questionable. In late 2008, real interest rates rose sharply. Have I forgotten to? I'm sorry. Uh, I've completely messed up here. I forgot to show you this slide. Um, this is the data uh, I was referring to. Uh, about the monetary base in the United States in the Great Depression and in uh, the interest rates also during that time period. So now you can look at this and hopefully better understand what I was saying there. Big increase in the monetary base, interest rates going down close to zero. Um, I mentioned 2007-2008. So Let's just take a look at a couple of graphs here and ask how the average economist would explain this type of uh, scenario. We've got a big reduction in interest rates occurring from five and a quarter percent down to two percent. If they had to explain this to their class, which graph would they use? I think a lot of economists would use the graph on the left. They say there are all these open market purchases, money was injected in the economy, and interest rates fell. But in fact, what actually happened over this period of about nine months is illustrated in the graph to the right. From that perspective, it doesn't look like the Fed did anything. The monetary base was basically constant for about nine months, and interest rates fell, I would argue, just because they fell in the marketplace and the Fed went along with it to avoid creating any macroeconomic disruption. Milton Friedman talked about how people were misinterpreting Japan in the late 90s. And he argued that low rates are actually a sign that money has been tight. Uh, now Friedman, of course, suggested an alternative, the broader monetary aggregates, M1, M2. Frederick Mishkin in his famous textbook also disagrees with the notion that interest rates measure the stance of monetary policy. But his alternative is other asset prices. Now, if you look at other asset markets in the second half of 2008, what you see is all the other asset markets were signaling money was tight other than short-term nominal interest rates. So real interest rates went up a lot. The dollar appreciated strongly. Stock and commodity prices crashed. Commercial and residential real estate prices fell sharply. Tip spreads fell sharply. Everything was signaling contractionary except the interest rates. And that seems to be the one people paid attention to. More recently, though, a study by Vasco Herdia showed that money has actually been contractionary all the way 
since 2008 to the present, comparing the actual interest rate to the Vixellian equilibrium rate. Ben Bernanke, again, just as with Friedman and Mishkin, rejects interest rates, both real and nominal, also rejects the money supply as being an adequate indicator. He points to nominal GDP growth and inflation. So now we have three alternatives promoted by three very prominent economists to the conventional ones. So we don't really have any clear concept of what we mean by easy and tight money. Uh, now, I prefer uh, Bernanke's approach, I'll explain in a moment, but let me first talk about why it matters. And uh, you can probably see I should have had George prepare my slides uh, instead next time. There's a lot of information here. So I'm going to summarize. This is a very important statement, I think, made by Frederick Mishkin at his last FOMC meeting, August 2008. He was very concerned that people were misjudging the stance of monetary policy. And he made a long statement talking about how in the past, in Japan, in America, and the Great Depression, when we had misjudged the stance of monetary policy, it had led to very bad outcomes. Now, that may not be why we had a bad outcome right after this meeting, but it's interesting that he was worried about this problem. Now, some people say, well, it's just a question of semantics. It, it, what matters is what the Fed does, not what we call it. Well, suppose the Fed in 2008 had raised interest rates from 3% to 8%. And suppose we'd had the same sort of uh, downturn that we actually saw, prices falling, output falling. It seems clear to me that people would have blamed the Fed for the, for the recession. And I think that's because they would have perceived policy to have been contractionary, and they would have linked those two. So I think the way people think about policy, whether it's expansionary or contractionary, in their mind affects the way they think about causation. It's not just semantics we're talking about. It's, it's how we think about causation in the world. Uh, Bernanke mentioned nominal GDP growth and inflation. Uh, the reason I like nominal G GDP growth better is inflation can affect, reflect either demand side or supply side factors. And I would argue only the demand side inflation is actually a monetary inflation that we need to worry about. Same thing for deflation, of course. It's symmetrical. So nominal GDP growth, I would argue, is the best indicator of the stance of monetary policy. And I'm hoping if we get economists to think about how we measure it, what numbers do we look at when you say money's easier tight, I hope they'll sort of end up there. Second, Fed accountability. Um, ben Bernanke has admitted that the Fed caused the Great Depression, also admitted that the Fed caused the Great Inflation. And in his recent memoir, he admitted that the Fed blew it in the meeting in September 2008 and should have cut interest rates, which perhaps contributed to the Great Recession. So we have Bernanke admitting to a lot of important mistakes with great attached to them, which is a little disconcerting. Um, now, what I think we really need here is not central banks looking back to much earlier decisions that were taken far in the past, but a more systematic reevaluation. So my vision of accountability is a little bit different from what's being discuss discussed in Congress. Rather, what I'd like to see is the Fed at each meeting look back maybe a year or two and based on the data that has come in, decide and tell us whether in retrospect those earlier decisions were too expansionary, 
to contractionary or about right. And um, I think that this would help in a lot of ways for people in academia like myself, people in the markets, to better understand what the Fed is actually doing. For instance, between 2010 and 2014, it wasn't really clear to me whether the outcome was less growth in aggregate demand than the Fed wanted or about what they wanted, but they just had a different vision of what the appropriate level was than what I thought was appropriate. And this kind of systematic reevaluation of past decisions would make it clear to people what the Fed is actually trying to do. And uh, there's a lot of differences in opinion at the Fed, so this would be a, a vote as to sort of the consensus view of what it would be, what the intentions were and how they uh, met those. The Fed would actually get to choose the criteria, so there's really, I think, no loss of independence here. There's less to worry about, perhaps, at the Fed. Um, and uh, so this slide just, again, summarizes what I would like them to do to look back one or two years and, and give us as much transparency as possible as to which numbers they're using to uh, evaluate whether money was too tight or too expansionary in retrospect. Again, I'm hoping it'll be nominal GDP growth that'll be the metric chosen. And finally, the guardrails. So there's a lot of academic... Um, evidence or there's academic studies that suggest, especially at the zero bound, that level targeting has attractions associated with it. Uh, on the other hand, the Fed currently opposes level targeting because they fear, and I think they fear correctly, that it would dramatically reduce the amount of discretion in Fed policy. Uh, for instance, under level targeting, there can no longer be hawks and doves at a central bank. That's a huge change from what we have now. One compromise that would give some of the benefits of level targeting without giving up all discretion would be to set maximum allowable deviations from the central forecast or target, if you will. So if the Fed wanted 4% nominal GDP growth, they might allow themselves some discretion for unforeseen circumstances, but have a limit of no less than three, no more than five. And if you break those barriers, you promise to come back into that target range. And that would give Fed policy a lot more traction at the zero bound. Now, to address George's question, how do we implement this? My choice, my preference would be a nominal GDP futures market, where we let market expectations guide the money supply and interest rates to a level that the market thinks will achieve on target nominal GDP growth. Um, Short of that, then we, we'd have to rely on some sort of internal Fed forecast would be my second best choice. And finally, the last slide, just to sort of put this in perspective, if you think about these proposals, they're really pretty innocuous one by one. I mean, who could object to the Fed clarifying what it means in its communication when it uses terms like easy money and tight money? That seems a no-brainer. Uh, who would object to some sort of accountability in the form of revisiting past decisions and seeing whether they were appropriate so you could learn lessons from the past, better understand mistakes you made or what you did right? And especially if the central bank was allowed to set the criteria for that reevaluation. And I think the guardrails approach is also less controversial than uh, strict level targeting. So my hope is that these will nudge the Fed gradually over time towards nominal GDP targeting, but not appear too threatening all at once. 
and I use the frog in the pot, hot pot metaphor for where we'll end up hopefully at the end of this period of incremental reforms. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat>
I think that would have been what's what the Fed should have done in 2009, 10, 11, rather than do all the quantitative easing. It would have made a lot more sense. So anyway, it's an age-old problem. I think there's, you're also adding the problems that, in fact, because of the special circumstance of the zero rate and, and the other kinds of actions, it actually could be contractionary. I mean, it's quite possible. The uncertainty associated with that, how we're going to reduce the balance sheet, uh, just the debate about when we'll normalize, all those things, uh, are, I think, are inherently contractionary. And so I would add that to the list of what's, uh, what, sh what should you you'd be looking at. Way at the back. Can you wait for, wait for a mic, please? Uh, Bertie Lee, a banking and monetary policy consultant. I don't want to be too much of a heretic here, but since we are at Cato, I'd like to toss out if there's been any consideration of a third option uh, to rules or discretion, and that's called the market. Uh, is it possible that we can let the financial markets set interest rates and the growth of credit in the way we let markets set uh, just about everything else uh, in the economy? Charlie, George, I'll, that's I'll, kind of right up your alley. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll start, uh, Bert. Uh, of course, it's a very important question. Uh, the problem is that, like it or not, <clears throat> the money we have consists of Federal Reserve liabilities and substitutes for them created by the private banking system. And we know that uh, if we just let, uh, 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 that, that the only reason these liabilities and all that money have some value is because their scarcity is contrived. It's an artificial consequence of the fact that Unlike the Banco Central of Venezuela, for example, our central bank hasn't decided to issue oodles of this stuff. So when you, when you talk about um, letting, just letting the market do its thing in a system where the established money is a fiat money uh, made scarce by a central bank, uh, you have to define what you mean by that. Does it mean that uh, that we just stop all open market operations? Does it mean we freeze the base, which is a similar thing? What does it mean to let the market take over? In fact, I don't think it can mean very much. Uh, I mean, it, there's a sense in which we can let the market take over in, in allowing other substitutes to, to develop as much as uh, we can legally, but the fact remains that those substitutes are unlikely to sweep aside the dollar in, in, in any quick period of, short period of time. The Fed is always doing something, even when it stands pat. It's always controlling the, the monetary base. It's always influencing interest rates. So the juxtaposition of having market determine interest rates and having a fiat money is just something that, to me, is an, it, it, those things just can't go together. We can try to impose rules, as people have discussed, on trying to limit the arbitrariness of the control of this artificially scarce fiat money, and therefore let market source, uh, forces play a greater role. But at some level, there has to be some non-market force that continues to make the fiat money reasonably scarce and reasonably well-behaved. Or alternatively, we need to get away from fiat money altogether. Okay, time, time for one more. Let's go right here in the front. Uh, my name is <clears throat> Ed Teriakin. I'm just here for myself. Um, we've been talking about imposing or coming up with rules-based uh, targeting for the Fed. I think there are a couple of rules that are legally required. That's the dual mandate. 
to sort of guarantee the purchasing power of the currency and since the 1940s full employment. So my question is, is the dual mandate uh, a good thing to have? I remember a few years ago, Senator Klobuchar was, or was uh, questioning um, Chairman Bernanke at one of the Humphrey Hawkins uh, meetings, and she said, what difference would it have made if the Fed had only had a single mandate to guarantee the purchasing power of the currency? Would you have done anything different if you didn't have the mandate about full employment? And, Senator, and Chairman Bernanke said it would not have made any difference in our policy decisions. So my question is, is that just a bit of a, a ghost, this, this second mandate? And does the ECB have it right having a, a one mandate only as to the purchasing power of the currency? Right, I think that's, that one's for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I recall Ben, ben saying that. I, I actually think the mandate is important, uh, as I tried to allude to. I think that the, the broader the mandate that's specified in legislation allows greater latitude and sets greater expectations on the Fed and what it's supposed to do and what it can achieve. And it's not necessarily even consistent with... Uh, what it can or can't do. It's just, here's what you do. I remind people that the mandate actually says, uh, I'll get this mostly right, uh, monetary policy is to control the long-run growth money and credit aggregates consistent with the long-run potential for the U.S. economy to produce so as to promote <laughs> price stability and maximum employment and moderate long-term interest rates. Now, you know, you, that's a pretty broad, you know, mandate. And interestingly enough, it talks more about money and credit aggregates than it does about interest rates, which is kind of an interesting, which so the central bank's kind of thrown out and thinks about interest rates. But, but um, so I actually think the mandate is a problem. And particularly for someone like myself who, or even in the general discussion we've had today, this sort of, how do you legitimize all the discretion that they have, that the Fed has? Um, the broad mandate, I think, is problematic because it promotes this, this discretion and it supports discretion and it gives the Fed the latitude. So the challenge is how do you proscribe either the rules or the strategy <laughs> to limit the broad mandate's implications of wide discretionary behavior and options. So I think the mandate is, is important. And I would, I would argue, I guess, that, that um, it does matter. It does change the way people operate um, uh, because it shapes the expectations, uh, both of the marketplace and of the policymakers. Great. Thank you very much. Apologies to... Sorry, one sec. Um, so two really quick announcements. Lunch is uh, upstairs one floor in the Jaeger Conference Center. Um, the restrooms are also on the second floor. Um, on your way to lunch, look for the yellow wall. And now please join me in thanking the panelists for a great session. <laughs>